Consider the words of the 8th century monarch of Cordova. At the end of his life, he said this, I have now reigned 50 years, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches, honors, power, and pleasure have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been lacking for me. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot, and they amount to 14. This man had everything the world had to offer his whole life, and he found joy and satisfaction 14 days of his entire life. Consider the words of the insanely wealthy King Solomon from roughly 1000 BC. He says this, Ecclesiastes 2, 9 and following, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon is saying, I had everything my eyes desired, all the wealth, all the sex, all the fame, all the power, and it was all vanity. Consider the words of that famous 20th century philosopher, Mick Jagger. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. Mick Jagger had everything we all want, fame, wealth, women, mansions, fast cars. Yet, he very honestly says he could never ever find satisfaction. Now, here's the thing. We all think that we're different. I'm not like those guys. I can probably find some satisfaction and wealth and power and sex and fame. We're different. We're the exception to the rule. But if you live long enough, you'll realize, like the rest of humanity for thousands of years, that nothing in this life, nothing of this world can quench your soul's thirst for satisfaction and delight and lasting happiness. Which raises the question, how in the world do we find lasting joy, satisfaction, and delight? And the answer is found in John 4. Jesus very clearly says that only in drinking living water will our thirst be quenched. Three points this morning. The need for living water, the nature of living water, and the location of living water. First is the need for living water, which raises the question, who needed this living water? And the answer is, 
a very thirsty woman. Now, why was she so incredibly thirsty? Because she had at least three strikes against her. Strike one, we learn in verses one to six of, this, of chapter four, that she was a Samaritan. Now, a little bit of background is required here. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came in to the 10 northern tribes of Israel and decimated them. That was God's judgment, by the way, because God disciplines those that he loves. And when the Assyrian king came in and did that, he brought with him thousands of Assyrians to intermarry with the Israelites in the northern part of Israel. So these two races mixed together and created a new race called the Samaritans. And so all the Jews viewed them as these awful half-breeds. Furthermore, it was very syncretistic. They, they tried to basically bring together a Syrian religion with the religion of Israel, and they ended up denying 34 books of the Old Testament, and they only affirmed the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. So they were seen as this half-breed of religious compromisers by the Jews of the first century. They were not liked. They were not popular in Israel in the first century. Uh, and, in fact, one scholar makes the point that the Pharisees fervently prayed that no Samaritans would ever be raised in the resurrection. The Pharisees also believed that all Samaritan women were unclean from birth. They hated the Samaritans so much that they refused to even step foot in Samaria. Instead, they would walk all the way around, which was way more work, way more blood, sweat, and tears. The Pharisees despised the Samaritans. So the original audience would have been totally shocked and surprised that Jesus is here not only talking with, but asking for a cup of water from a Samaritan. This doesn't shock us, but it would have definitely shocked the original audience. So strike one, she's a Samaritan. Strike two, she's a woman. Now, unfortunately, in this culture, women were not valued by men. They were seen as second-class citizens, especially Samaritan women. And the fact that Jesus is talking with this woman indicates that in God's eyes, male and female are equal in worth and in value. But in this culture, it was very inappropriate for a guy, especially a Jewish guy, to talk to a Samaritan woman. That's strike two. Strike three, she is a relational and a sexual mess. She's a very, very broken human being. We read in verses 15 to 19, this woman has been married not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times. And the guy she's now with, who she's sharing her bed with, is not her husband. Luke 10 tells the story of the good Samaritan. This is the story of the bad Samaritan. She was not a righteous person. She was a very broken, dysfunctional, unhappy person, probably used to being used and abused by men. She looked to a string of men to satisfy her soul's deepest longings. And human relationships can never, ever do that for us. One scholar says this, her life was a miserable chain of unfulfilling relationships. Like so many in our culture, she is dying of spiritual dehydration, and she has no clue why. She just knows she's really unsatisfied and broken. 
Even the non-Christian novelist, David Foster Wallace, understood this principle that nothing in this life ultimately satisfies. At a commencement speech at Kenyon College about a decade and a half ago, he said this, everybody worships. Pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power. You end up feeling weak and afraid. You will never ever, ever and, you will, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, very sadly, a little while after he gave this speech, he took his own life because he realized that nothing in this life satisfies. Nothing. Which means our hearts were made for something more. David Foster Wallace, the Samaritan woman, and so many of us are like sailors adrift at sea in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We have no water, and we are incredibly thirsty. Six hours go by, and you're getting pretty thirsty. 12 hours go by, you're even thirstier. 24 hours go by, and all you can think about, talk about, and dream about is just one drop of water. You are acutely aware of your need for water. You're desperate. There is no water. There's no water anywhere in your boat. So out of desperation, because you long for that sense of liquid on your mouth, you begin to sip salt water. And before you know it, the salt water kills you. That's all of us to some extent. Sipping salt water, drinking from the wrong wells, thinking that the things of this life will satisfy us, and they never ever will. They'll just leave us empty and broken, always wanting more, feeling more and more dehydrated. Through a series of circumstances, by the time I was a junior in high school, I realized that the well of athletics and girlfriends and grades would not satisfy. God in his kindness brought me to that point where I realized that things in this life will not satisfy. Well, what happened? My girlfriend and I broke up, leaving me devastated, which meant she was a huge idol in my life. I lost my top spot on the tennis team to a freshman named Spencer Piston. <laughs> Still kind of bitter about that. Almost 30 years later. And my grades began to really suffer. And all three of those things left me depressed, lonely, and wanting more out of life. And that's when I finally realized those things will not satisfy. Only Christ will satisfy. And God in his grace will bring you to that place eventually because he loves you. Which raises the question, what well are you drinking from this morning? The well of wealth? 
the well of health, chasing that perfect body, the well of things, I could just have some more clothes, a new car, a new house, the well of status, the well of friendships, the well of successful kids. If my kids could just get good grades and get launched into life and be successful, then I'll be happy. Really? How's that going? The well of illicit pleasure, the well of alcohol and drugs. Some of these things are not bad. Some of these things are gifts from God, but they're not meant to be ultimate things. They're gifts to be enjoyed, but they're not meant to give us true and lasting satisfaction. Theologians talk about the when syndrome. We often think, when I get out of the house, when I go to college, then I'll be happy. Or when I finally get married, then I'll be happy. Or when I finally have children, then I'll be happy. Or when my kids finally leave the house, then I'll be happy. Or when I have grandkids, or when I retire, or when I get promoted, or when I make the team, then I'll be happy. But none of those things will ever, ever satisfy. These accomplishments will never, ever slake our thirst. And we all know that getting that new car, that new house, that new relationship, that illicit pleasure will satisfy for a moment. But that satisfaction always evaporates eventually. And it's critical to remember that as Christians, when we look to the wrong wells to satisfy us, it's not just painful for us, but it's idolatry. It's a violation of the first commandment. We're called to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, not the things of this world. And when we do that, God is grieved and we must repent. Why in the world do you and I keep doing this? <laughs> Why do we keep looking to the wrong wells to satisfy us? We all do it, don't we? Including your pastor. Why do we keep doing this after decades of knowing these things don't satisfy have you ever wondered that? Why do we keep doing this? It's because we don't really believe what God's word says. That's the issue. It's an issue of faith. Do we really believe what God's word says? If we do, we'll stop looking to the wrong wells to satisfy. Eventually, all of us will feel our need for something more, for living water. But what is it? That brings us to the next point. So first is the need for living water, and second is the nature of living water. Look with me at John 4.10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In the Old Testament, living water referred to God's life-giving presence designed to nourish humanity. 
Listen to some of these Old Testament texts, Jeremiah 2.13. For my people, God says, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying, the things of this life are all broken cisterns, and none of them can hold living water. But God offers us living water in himself. Psalm 36, 9. The psalmist writes to God, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. And the Old Testament prophets look forward to a time when living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Ezekiel 47, Zechariah 14. Living water, very simply put, is relationship with God, the very presence of God with us. Without water, you will die. Without living water, you will die spiritually. Clearly, living water is a very good and important thing, but what does it actually do for us? What does living water do? Living water satisfies completely. Look with me at John 4, 11 to 14. The woman said to him, Sir, speaking to Jesus, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. In other words, earthly water from earthly wells will never, ever, ever quench our thirst, just like sin will never, ever quench our souls. Verse 14, Jesus says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In verse 14, Jesus makes a staggering promise. He says, whoever drinks this living water will never, ever, ever be thirsty again. Isn't that what we all want? We all want to have our souls deepest longings satisfied. And Jesus Christ is saying that is possible through this living water. <clears throat> we can experience deep satisfaction and delight in Christ, which means that we can stop our ceaseless striving Furthermore, he says, this water will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, the Greek word behind welling or bubbling is a very strong word, picturing a geyser leaping up, a picture often found in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49 and 55. What Jesus is saying is that abundant life, living water, will explode out of this messianic spring forever. It will never, ever, ever run out. 
but it'll feed your soul for all eternity. The land that became Yellowstone National Park was discovered in 1870. It was so spectacular, so beautiful, that the Congress decided to make it uh, our nation's first national park. In fact, many think it's the first national park ever created in the world. And one of the first things the Army Scouts noticed as they stumbled across this spectacular tract of land was several geysers that seemed to explode up into the air on a regular basis. Nearly 150 years later, over 4 million people a year visit Yellowstone National Park to visit the most famous geyser, which is known as Old Faithful. It was named Old Faithful because it shot tens of thousands of boiling hot water into the air on a regular basis. But it's not as faithful as people think. You may have to wait anywhere from 35 minutes to two hours to watch this thing explode. In fact, a lot of tourists get mad because they have to wait so long, typical of Americans, to see this thing do its magic. Many argue that it was much more faithful decades ago. And geologists are now saying that more than likely it'll run out of water by the end of the century. Now that's very political, like most things are in America. Um, but many geologists think that Old Faithful will stop shooting water altogether uh, in roughly 80 years, which is tragic. In other words, what seemed like an endless supply of water will eventually run out. And every single worldly fountain that we drink from will eventually run out. It'll eventually dry up. But, John, but Jesus says the living water that he gives will never run out. It will well up inside of us like a spring bubbling over for all eternity. Again, back to verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That is welling up forever and forever and forever. A trillion years from now, you'll be drinking this water if you're trusting Jesus. This water satisfies both now and forever. It satisfies completely and eternally. But where specifically is this water located? And that brings us to the third and final point. So first, the need for living water. Second, the nature of living water. And third, the location of living water. The location of living water. Living water is not located in a place. Look with me at verses 16 to 20. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus graciously says to this bad Samaritan, I know that you have been married 
five times. And the guy you're now with, living with sinfully, is not your husband. At this point, it's safe to assume that the Samaritan woman is very uncomfortable in this conversation. (laughs) Here this complete stranger seems to know all of her deepest, darkest secrets. He has supernatural knowledge. And he's very graciously, very tenderly calling her out on her sin. And she says, I perceive you are a prophet, which was a very, very wise perception. Now, at this point, many people think, well, because she's so uncomfortable with this conversation, she changes the topic and begins to talk about a theological controversy uh, in the day. Or could it be that the words of this prophet make her so uncomfortable and so aware of her need for grace and forgiveness that she, bl- that she brings up the place of Samaritan worship because she knows she needs to go to God and get help because her life is a broken mess and she's not very satisfied. Verse 20. Our fathers, she says, worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The Samaritans worshipped at a place called Mount Gerizim. And it was, it was their, their place of worship was basically destroyed about 150 years before this event at the well. It was gone at this point in world history. But the Samaritans had a place of worship called Mount Gerizim. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus makes a simple point that the location of worship is not the issue. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you're on Mount Gerizim or you're in Jerusalem. Those things don't matter, especially because Jesus is about to to die and rise from the grave, which is going to radically alter how the nation of Israel thinks about worship in the first place. But the point he's making here is that the location of worship is irrelevant. Verse 22, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's making the simple point that the Samaritans are ignorant of true worship because they deny 34 of the 39 Old Testament books. They only believe the first five. So they're, they're ignorant of what is involved or required in true worship. Then 23 and 24, Jesus gets at the heart of worship. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And truth. Notice that Jesus says that God is spirit, which means that God does not have physical parts. He does not have a body. This is called the spirituality of God. Not that he is a spirit like the Holy Spirit, but he does not take up space. He's incorporeal, which means he can be everywhere present, which means that the location of worship is irrelevant. It doesn't matter where you are. Then Christ goes on to say what he really cares about 
What God deeply cares about is people worshiping him in spirit and truth. Now, most scholars think that in spirit is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Because notice that he says, uh, in, not in the spirit, but in spirit. It's 24b. He's not talking about worshiping by the power of the spirit. He's talking about the human spirit's role in worship. In this worldview of the first century, the spirit was the very essence of who we are. And Christ is saying that he does not care about lifeless, cold, sterile, formal worship. What he really cares about is people worshiping him from the inner core of their being. He wants all of us involved, all of our affection, all of our heart, all of our desires, our will, involved in worshiping God, which does not mean that you have to cry when you sing on Sunday mornings or raise your hands. But it does mean that occasionally you should be moved. Your affection should be involved. And if they're not, ask God. Cry out to God to reveal to you the splendor of his majesty. Worship comes from seeing God for who he really is. And so often our eyes are blind to his glorious, majestic reality. But Christ is saying, location does not matter. What matters is you and I worshiping God from the very depth of our being. And again, if our heart's not engaged, repent and pray that your heart would get engaged. Because that's what God wants from us. And God is worthy of our entire beings being engaged in worship. We must worship him in spirit and in truth, which means the scriptures must inform our worship. So at GCF, we try to the best of our ability to create worship services that are informed by scripture. Our call to worship is from the scriptures. Our confession of sin is informed by the scriptures. Our prayer is informed by the scriptures. Our songs are informed by the scriptures. Hopefully the sermon is from the scriptures. And the benediction at the end is also from the scriptures. The truth of God's word must orchestrate, organize, and define how we worship. Now, worship is all of life, but when we gather on the Lord's day as the saints, it's the scriptures that must guide, direct, inform, and drive all that we do. Okay, back to the point. Jesus is basically saying, living water is not located in a particular place, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. That's not the issue. It's not about a place. So where is it located? Living water is located in a person. Verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah, which means Savior, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ or anointed one. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, verse 26 is really the climax of all of chapter 4. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. 
What a claim. He's claiming that he is the long-awaited, spirit-anointed Messiah or Savior, the one that Israel has been waiting for for over 1,500 years, 2,000 years, going back to Abraham. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior, which means that he can save us from sin's guilt. He can save us from sin's power. He can save us from Satan's devices, and he can save us from hell's torments. He's the only one who can do it, and he does it by living and dying and rising from the grave. Furthermore, he saves us from the pain and the heartache of drinking from the wrong wells. He reminds us that he is the source of living water. John 4, 13 to 14, back up a little bit. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus gives us the living water. And again, the living water is the very presence of God. Later on in the, in the Gospel of John, we learn the living water is specifically the Holy Spirit's presence in us. John 7, 30 to 39. Again, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus would leave this conversation with this woman, and eventually he would die on the cross for her sins and the sins of all those who would trust in him. Then he would rise from the grave, sit at his Father's right hand, and there he would pour out the Spirit at Pentecost. Everyone who has trusted in Jesus, has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. That is the living water. It's the Spirit of God who manifests the presence of God to us. The Spirit of God reminds us of our adoption. The Spirit of God assures us of our salvation. The Spirit of God comforts us in times of loneliness and heartache and pain. And the Spirit of God reminds us that we are forgiven of all of our sins. Jesus gives us the living water by dying, rising, and pouring out the Spirit. And he gives it to us free of charge. Now this raises some obvious questions. Do you know the Messiah's saving power? Have you personally tasted this living water? Now like many of you, I will go through seasons where I forget about the living water and look to other, other wells that I know won't satisfy, but I keep looking to them because I forget God's promises and I have to repent. God, forgive me for this idolatry and go back to the living water once again. The whole Christian life is really us repenting, repenting, repenting of looking to the wrong things to satisfy us. Why do we sit in the first place? Because we think mistakenly 
that sin will satisfy. And it never does. So we have to continually go to God and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for drinking from the wrong well. And help me once again to drink from the living water. Now, for us to experience that living water, we have to cultivate our relationship with God. He's not going to force us to drink it. We have to cultivate that relationship through the ordinary means of grace. Scripture reading, prayer, fellowship, church attendance, celebration of the sacraments. All those things are things that God has given us to help us cultivate an experience of that living water. If you never read your Bible and pray, come to church once a month, you're not going to have a robust experience or taste of that living water. We are not saved by those means of grace. We're saved by grace alone plus nothing. But if we want to experience the living water, we have to cultivate that relationship with God. And God has given us every tool we need to do that. Well, maybe you think you're just too broken. You're too sinful. There's too much shame and pain in your life. God doesn't love you. Maybe you feel that way this morning. Well, consider who Christ is offering this living water to. A woman who's been married five times. And she is currently involved in fornication. Yet God in his grace holds out to this broken woman living water. Which reveals to us that God loves the outcasts. He loves the disenfranchised. He loves the lonely. He loves the broken. He loves you. Yes, you this morning. And he offers everyone here a cup of living water. And all you have to do is admit that you need it. Repent of your sins. Turn away from those idols, those broken cisterns. And look to Christ again and again and again. And when you stop drinking, repent and drink again. And drink again and drink again. And you'll drink this living water for all eternity. Let me close by reading an Old Testament description of the living water, which you heard earlier this morning. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free of charge. There is nothing you can do to earn it. It's free. It doesn't cost anything to us, but it costs Christ everything. Verse two, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Delight yourself in your relationship with God. 
through the cultivation of the ordinary means of grace. God longs to give all of us living water this morning. Let's pray together.